Welcome to the Voice of Retail. I'm your host, Michael LeBlanc. This podcast is brought to you in conjunction with Retail Council of Canada and with the support of Omnovos, Canada's digital customer engagement company. Omnovos makes personalization easy by helping you connect with your customers, connect with your data, and connect with your systems. Learn how at www.realcustomerengagement.com. In this episode, I welcome back top global strategist and former dean of the Rotman School of Business in Toronto, Roger Martin, on the launch of his latest book, When More Is Not Better, Overcoming America's Obsession with Economic Efficiency, now available to purchase from your favorite bookstore. We catch up after the summer with his perspectives on retail strategy in the COVID era and the concept of pre-pandemic consumer habits as rapidly decaying assets. Next, listen in as I present a quick keynote on the state of retail and e-commerce in Canada and then host a live and interactive discussion at the recent IAB e-commerce summit with my good friend, colleague and mentor, Ted Starkman, President and CEO of Stream Commerce, after an introduction by the moderator of the day, Dominic LaForest from Chorus Entertainment and additional commentary provided by Sonia Carino, President IAB Canada. But first, let's check in with global strategist and author, Roger Martin. Roger, welcome back to the Voice of Retail podcast, and and congratulations on the launch of your latest book, When More Is Not Better, now available for purchase. First time we talked back in May, um, we were I was looking at the galley version. We had a great discussion about the book, but now uh, for everyone listening, uh, rush to your favorite bookstore and uh, now available on shelves. So congratulations. Thank you. It's it's always fun to see the, the long gestation period, and when it actually actually arrives, it, it does feel feel good. And also, I must say, I really enjoyed our last podcast. That's why I'm delighted to be back. Oh, fantastic! Now, let me ask you the question: How long does it take you to write a book like this? Do you have a process? I talked to Dan Pink, who you know, actually, I met uh-huh, through Dan, you. Dan's great, yes, Dan's great, and and we were talking. I was interested in his tradecraft, like, and he said, you know, he's got his own thing. He he must not leave the room until he writes a certain number of words. What's your process when you write? Yeah, I, I'm a little a little different. We Dan and I've talked uh, talked uh, about it uh, sometime. I'm I'm not quite that way so so my thing is i build a book i don't write it so the the way i think about it is is i work very very long and hard uh through many 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 iterations like dozens of a kind of 2500 word or thereabouts precy of the whole book and it's often it's often sort of point form Right, it's not even written out uh, sentences uh, because I think I think a lot of authors waste a lot of time on prose that they never use because it doesn't actually end up fitting. So, so I want to get the logic of the book as tight as possible in in this short form. Then I tend to blow it up to uh, give or take uh, twelve thousand five hundred uh, word draft, which is which is now all prose, not no no longer point form. But I wouldn't have long stories in it or case examples i just say tell the this story here in Mm. one line that would end Mm. up being you know a a thousand or a couple thousand words in in due course then then i blow it up to twenty five thousand words and then i blow it up to to fifty thousand words fifty sixty thousand words whatever the the end is so it's so you 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 start with a tenth of a book and, and build it up to hundred. But I, I find it, it helps you create a coherent argument and not, and, and when you actually write a caselet, a story, it can be much more precise because you know exactly where it fits in the, in the logical structure. So for me, it's not so much how many words have I, have I written like Dan, like Dan, uh, mm-hmm. who's, who's awesome, by the way, I, yeah, yeah. I love the guy. And it, it is, it is, it is more, I'm, I'm in this business of infilling various things. Okay. I'm going to write this story now that I know exactly what, uh, how I have to craft it. I'll, I'll, I'll write it or, Oh, I have to, I have to get my researchers to go out and make sure that it, we've got the numbers for this, uh, uh, section. So, so it's. That, that's sort of how I do it, but I, I I I think it is intimidating for Dan Pink. It's not intimidating because he's done it and he's done it a whole bunch of times, super well. Yeah. But yeah. for lots of people who are starting into writing, just sort of putting pen to paper, starting at the start and saying I'm going to write fifty, sixty, seventy thousand words, it's really intimidating. And I think my method helps take away that intimidation by saying, no, 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 just work on the logical flow of what you're trying to get across. Right. 
So it overcomes the tyranny of the blank screen, which I've suffered from mm-hmm. myself occasionally as you try to write yes. something and you're like, ah, oh, yes. where do I start? And, you know, you're waiting for inspiration to take. That's interesting. Um, it, you know, it, it reminds me a little bit, we're getting a bit off topic, but it reminds me of how Amazon executives present their ideas at their executive table. If you've heard about this, they write the PR launch of the product. Oh, and when no, they sit down, it, it's, a, it's fascinating. There's so many lessons you can learn from Amazon in the way they, mm-hmm. they do things. But apparently, so if you're launching a product, you have to write the press release in like two pages and at the beginning of the meeting everyone sits down and reads the press release so the first you know five ten minutes of the meeting is silence they're reading the press release of what you're about to talk to and and it goes from there it's just fascinating interesting so Mm -hmm. they they want to get a really synoptic overview and if you can't do a synoptic overview you probably have got a crappy product and it's oriented to how we would sell this thing yeah. versus every, anything like it's not a strategy yeah. about how it fits in the product line. It's about, Hey, get, guess what? Great consumers. And I saw they did, they did this launch yesterday. I don't know if you saw it, they, you know, their ring product, they have that ring home security. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they now yeah. have a flyable drone for your house uh-huh. that on re- regular occasions takes off and flies around the house with a camera. Oh, I see. So to, if you got a shingle missing or a window, it was indoor. Missing. I think it's indoor because oh, I think indoor. It, it's oh, okay. like a little thing. It's like a pack of cards kind of thing. Anyway, we're getting off topic, but it's kind of fun. <laughs> Just the stuff that's coming out of these organizations. Well, listen, let's, let's jump right in. I mean, we spoke together as, as we said in our last podcast, which is fantastic, both about your background and, and basically about the thesis of the book. So I'd encourage anyone listening to, to page back to that. And, and that's a great long discussion, but for those who didn't hear it, and just to kind of bring us up to date, give us a, a snapshot of your background and the um, the thesis, uh, uh, the introduction to the book. Well, um, I started life as a country boy, grew up in a little town called Wallenstein, Ontario, about five miles from Elmira, which is about 15 miles from uh, Waterloo, Ontario, and in uh, farm country. I grew up in a village, not on a farm, and I ended up deciding to head off to college in the U.S. And so I went to college and business school in Boston and fell in with a bunch of guys at business school who created a consulting company called Monitor Company, did that for a decade and a half after after business school, then got talked into being the dean of the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto by Rob Pritchard, the the then president and of uh, University of Toronto and the most uh, uh, the best salesperson I've, I've ever met in my life. <laughs> Did that for fifteen years and uh, worked on the the book that we're going to uh, talk about as the head of uh, a research center there after after being dean. I stayed at a research center there called the Martin Prosperity Institute for six years, and I now uh, live in, in Florida. And but during the whole time, I've I've maintained a, a practice of uh, advising uh, CEOs on strategy and innovation and people and other other topics uh, and so now I'm I'm a retired professor and I write books and articles and and uh, consult to CEOs the the book uh, as I've had the opportunity to read it is really um, fits in with in some ways your life's work around understanding modern capitalism and, and strategy so give us a sense uh, give listeners a sense about what the, the the book is it talks about over efficiency and and there's a bunch of other things nested in within it but it really is a, a fascinating look at how a business concept can go way too far and actually have impacts that are, are you know both unintended and deleterious that's a, that's a nice little summary yourself michael i mean it's true so the 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 genesis of the book was a concern i had about the future of democratic capitalism as of 2013 when i started the project i worried that there had been a stagnation of middle incomes combined with an acceleration of high incomes at the same time and since i like democracy and capitalism uh, I worried that the intersection of the two was going to get into trouble, i.e. in democracy, essentially that median income family is the moral equivalent of the swing voter, people in and around it, maybe not be that family, but in, or, in around uh, there. And so you need people in and around the median income level to be voting for the continuation of capitalism as your economic system, or it'll be under uh, pressure, under threat. And what I have observed is that for about 200 years of American existence as a country, 1776 to 1976, 
that median income in almost all the years, 90 plus percent of the years, moved forward smartly. And there was the long depression in the late 1800s, the Great Depression that we all know about. So there were years when it was bad, but overall moved smartly ahead. And so that swing voter in, in America never really questioned, should we be capitalist? It's like, this works. Uh, I might like this for me, works for my family. Yeah. I might like a Republican or I might like a Democrat, but you know, gee, it it all works. Um, and then, uh, things changed dramatically in 1976, uh, in and around. I use that as the, as the marker, marker year where median income growth stalled to close to nothing, uh, while high income, uh, earners, uh, went off the charts, earning more and getting more wealthy than they'd ever been in history. So the book was about, uh, about it has something changed or is this just sort of a temporary thing? And, and uh, if so, um, how dangerous it, is it? And uh, if it's dangerous, what do we do about it? Uh, and I came to the conclusion, as you know, from reading the book that it is more systematic than we, th- we thought accidental, as you pointed out in your little summary, uh, accidental, but systematic it's going to get worse, not better, unless we do something about it. And that actually does threaten the future of democratic capitalism. Now, I think the interesting difference between 2013 and 2020 is mm-hmm. nobody was talking about socialism in America in 2013, right? Mm-hmm. Right? We didn't have the Bernie Bros movement yet. We didn't have young folks saying socialism would be would be would be fine. Mm-hmm. So, unfortunately, uh, uh, in some sense, a bunch of what I was worried about in 2013 was more prescient than not. We are having a crisis in democratic capitalism in America. I think when we talked about the efficiency model. Uh, as it pertains to you know retailers and business strategy, I mean, I think the the COVID crisis was putting, and again, it was kind of early days, but it was kind of putting a point on not just the the impacts on the overall system and, and democracy, but it was also putting a point on you know for all the efficiency we did. Now we're we, we're we're out of stock of everything because we we're walking it so close to the line. I mean, yes. PPE is the most obvious example for for the sake of saving a few millions of dollars of storage costs, cost the economy billions is one way to look at it. Yeah, you know, no, no, absolutely. crazy when you think about it. No, no, I was going to say, but your point is on, on retail, is, is it's absolutely right. I mean, I mean, how many people walking the floors of a, a retailer now are, yeah. you know, can't find uh, a, a person to help them? Right. And it's because staffing is down to the absolute bare minimum. And this was pre-COVID. I mean, now, now there's, you know, probably more re- reasons uh, uh, for that that are more complicated. But, but, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, I think retailing, there's a bunch of things in, in the world of retailing that I think were taken too, too far in the interest of efficiency that ended up not being, not being effective. So extremely tight uh, store floor uh, staffing, extremely tight, yeah. uh, getting rid of all quote excess labor, uh, labor, uh, uh, hours, cashiers, then grinding down wages, right? Paying wages that, that are, you know, barely, uh, a, a living wage, wage. And then often with uncertain uh, hours, really, like if you go deep into, into this, lots of retailers just are almost inhumane in the way they structure hours. You can work a 3 p.m. to 11 p.m. shift as a single mom and and just get assigned a 6 a.m. to you know 2 p.m. shift the next day. A, when are you supposed to sleep and what are you supposed to do with your, your family? All of those things help the retailer be more, quote, efficient. Mm-hmm. Uh, but is that somebody you you actually want to have serving your customers? Somebody who's exhausted, somebody who's racing around the store because there's not really enough uh, enough people and barely enough stock. All of those, all of those things. Now, am I saying that's all retailers? No, but there's too much of that in the in the retail uh, sector. And you know, as my my friend colleague Zainab Tan uh, demonstrated in her Good Job Strategy book, you know, there's other ways. Uh, the Costco way: pay them way more than minimum wage staff, more luxuriously with some uh, slack into it. Worry about uh, about scheduling to make sure the schedules uh, work well. Promote from within. Uh, Cross train them. 
even though all of that stuff seems quote inefficient and they're Mm -hmm. spending kind of a lot, a lot, a lot on it. They're still incredibly profitable, incredibly successful because the result is a customer experience that customers absolutely love swear you know i've been i've been seeing some movement on this uh, and i'll use an american example because uh, of thanksgiving so black friday you know being such a huge holiday for Mm -hmm. for many many years it's a crazy season this year because um for a whole bunch of other reasons that you know the retailers literally can't get the people in the store so they're trying to stretch it out or figure it out but you know for many decades um you know retail employees would have to work on Thanksgiving, one of the biggest family holidays, if not the biggest family holiday in America. And, you know, you started to see was Patagonia, Costco start to say, you know what, we don't need to be open on Thanksgiving. Enjoy your family. We're going to open up the next day. And I think this year will be the tipping point for that because, uh, you know, literally retailers are, are pulling back on, you know, door crashers, early things because they, they, they can't get with the limits that they can get in the stores, you know, it's a bit of both. They're, they're, they're starting to pull it back on that. So there is a bit of a movement on that. I think so. Uh, you know. and, and, and can I say, Michael, that, that mm-hmm. I just, I, that provides a really nice example of the balancing of efficiency and resilience. So mm-hmm. it's maximally efficient in the short term to be open on Thanksgiving. Right. But if that makes the lives of your workers miserable, because mm-hmm. you're right, that is that is having lived in these states for for a while, uh, you know, that is such a big uh, holiday. I'll, I'll always I'll always remember I have a freshman year in Boston uh, and uh, I was in class and this guy, Al Hamilton, was uh, who I'd sort of befriended, was you know, sitting next to me. And he said, oh, hey, Roger, what are you doing for Thanksgiving? And he assumed I'd be flying back to Canada. He didn't really realize that that wasn't Thanksgiving for for us. And I said, no, I'm just going to be hanging out here in the dorms. And it's almost as though his face went ashen. He was appalled, right? He was like, yeah, that can't, his reaction was that impossible. You will come to the Hamiltons for, for Thanksgiving. It was like, it was a duty to humanity to save me from an impossible, impossibly horrible fate of not being with friends and, and in a friendly environment. So I went out and had my first American Thanksgiving experience, which I will never forget, but, but I digress, but, but it's more resilient, right? It's a balancing that with resilience to say, no, I'm going to invest that day in having happy workers who have had the family experience who come back charged up to do a great job on 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 friday so that that i just i just stopped you there because it's a lovely example of of pushing either pushing efficiency to an extreme that's actually bad for you you Mm. the company versus balancing it with a little attention to resilience we want we want employees to have a kind of a life that will make them want to come to work, be able to come to work, be in a position to do a do a great job. That's the kind of balance that we need more, uh, more of. Yeah, and in in the fullness of time, it reduces one of the most problematic issues on the store floor, which is you know retention or turnover. Yeah, conversely, right? Uh, Mountain Equipment Co op in in Canada, uh, Mech did that. Uh, the new CEO now ex CEO they just uh, they just went into protection and and uh, got sold to a US private equity shop he, he when he first got there he said listen i'm going to raise everybody's wages and i'm going to do it because i it's economically efficient because i'm losing more money training and hiring than paying existing people to stay and so unfortunately he ran out of real estate for other reasons but you know that was certainly his philosophy and, and again that's a nice illustration of, of as you would know another aspect of the book which is he's taking a system dynamics uh of you he said he says oh this thing is connected to that thing which is connected to that thing right. rather than to say oh no 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 no, those three things are completely unconnected what we pay people is unconnected to retention no there's no connection those i need a manager of retention and a manager of of compensation and the manager of compensation is to get uh kind of wages uh down get rid of any slack make sure we have the lowest wage bill possible and that and my head of uh retention is supposed to make sure we retain people yeah. Right. And then uh, then the person in the first job is making it impossible for the person in the second job to yeah. to actually do their do their job. But that I mean, and what I've just described sounds comical, like it's like, well, that's stupid. Right. Yeah. 
No, not far from the daily truth. life. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> daily life, uh, and not just retail. I, I don't want to pick on sure, retail sure. in this run. It's it, it's it's across the board, and so that that mech CEO had one of the attributes that I think you have to have as a successful CEO in in this in this uh, world, which is no. I'm going to take into account that this is connected to that, which is connected to that, and we're going to manage those things as a connected whole. Now, is that harder? Yeah, it's harder to think through. I mean, it just is. And you got to get those people coordinating with one another. It's much easier to give a single objective function. You get uh, wage rates down to the minimum. You get uh, uh, retention up to the maximum. Yeah. You, you just think about think about that. And and what you get is the, is this sort of sub-optimization where, where the retention person uh, says, yeah, let's see if I can get my, my turnover down from 70% a year to 65% a year, right? Mm-hmm. And that's like an insanely high retention. But, but given, given his or her context of having hopelessly low wages and terrible working conditions, 65 is as good as it gets. Whereas if, if he had the ability to work with the other person to say, Hey, can we play with that? Maybe we could get it to, 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 you know, kind of 30% or like four seasons hotel, hotel turnover in the hotel world, you may know is, is retail. Like it's 70%, 70% annual uh, turnover in the, in the uh, global hotel business, four seasons, five. Wow. So you just think about it. You walk into a hotel worldwide and you're likely to be dealing with somebody whose lifelong career in that hotel company is about 16 months. But if you walk into Four Seasons, you're, you're, you're going to talk to somebody whose who's probable uh, time at, at Four Seasons will be 20 years. Who do you think is going to give you better service? Yeah, who's going to deliver the better experience? Yeah, yeah, and know how to make and uh, kind of clever, more clever than not decisions. All, all of that. Yeah, it's like a no-brainer. Uh, it's the it's part of the magic sauce at uh, at Four Seasons. You've been um, very active in one of my favorite platforms, Medium, and you've been writing some great stuff. And I wanted to hone in on. One thing, because you, 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 as you kind of do, you describe this rapidly decaying asset of habits, and we talked about habits in the first uh, in our first interview about this this big circuit breaker of consumer habits that COVID has has brought upon us. Give us your thoughts about you know. Let's hone in on some corporate strategy stuff. How how have you been observing over the past number of months, and what are your thoughts on on the formation or breaking of consumer habits and and Tell us about this this idea of, of habits as a rapidly decaying asset. Yeah, sure. So one of the biggest assets of any uh, company is not loyalty, right? It's actually habit. People having a habit of doing a given uh, thing. So people would be better described as having a habit of buying Tide or a habit of using Colgate than loyalty to that. Most of it is actually subconscious, not not conscious. We know that from the behavioral uh, research. So you should actually think of you know your true balance sheet as opposed to your financial balance balance sheet as 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 having a big asset of people with a habit of dumping your if it's retail dumping your product into the shopping cart without actually thinking about it uh, right. much the challenge for, uh, that covid presents is i think it's the biggest habit uh, interrupter since world war ii mm. like world war ii we had a bunch of uh, habits that were interrupted right uh, men going off to war and so being away from home women needing to do the jobs that men had done in factories you know rosie the riveter riv- right, riveting right. together planes uh Victory uh, gardens. Uh, yeah. X percentage of, of Canadians had a uh, huge percentage of Canadians had gardens in their backyard, and just all of that. Yeah, and and and, and uh, goods that are rationed, and and, and and all of that, and and lots of habits then changed and changed permanently. Well, COVID's the next biggest uh, kind of one, maybe as as big in terms of habit change. So, what what I say, my advice to companies is, you've got to ask the question for your particular product or service uh, has COVID broken a habit of using that and for like restaurants and movie mm-hmm. theaters and whatever it most certainly has. Yes. And then what are you going to do when the opportunity presents itself to 
aggressively reestablish that habit because the asset value of that habit is going to decline during the entire period of interruption and it'll keep on declining down to zero at due course like it'll all decay to uh to uh to zero so what habits were interrupted that you can try and reestablish um but also you have to start understanding what new habits were established where they like it better than the old habit. Mm, like mm. what you want is that they miss it. Let's say, let's just say, Michael, your favorite restaurant that was closed for six months, uh, but you love that restaurant. Now you're going to be less inclined to go to it than you were on your week. Let's say you, you and, and your best buddies or your, your partner uh, went every Saturday night that got interrupted for, for six months. So it's a decaying uh, asset. Mm. What can we do if we're that restaurant, uh, Martin's grill, what we should do if we had a, a decent CRM is, is a G and kind of Michael and his spouse uh, came every Saturday night. Let's email him and give him a free dinner. Yeah. To Just re- something to reestablish that. To reestablish that. Right? Yeah, exactly. Um, now, if it's, if it's your, your own New York commercial, a commercial real estate, um, I think you're going to have to make a, make a determination of what to do because they like their new habit, which is not commuting to Manhattan from yeah. Scarsdale, uh, or, or, uh, Hoboken or, or wherever every, uh, uh, every day and mm. and figure out do you have to ha- go with a new habit which is having remote workspace in in uh, in scarsdale or the hamptons or whatever yeah. uh, that you can rent because you're not going to be able to get the money you you used to get for manhattan real estate but it's all figuring out how to re-establish the habit when that re-establishment has a chance or figuring out how you've got to adjust to the new habit if you're if you were dependent on a habit that has been beaten out now that now that uh, it, by an alternative now that the person has forcibly been uh, had to try the the alternative and of course the, retail, retailing that's that's happening where people who didn't yeah, love sure. online yeah right there are all the people who loved online and were already doing but there's people who were sort of fearful and worried about online who've now done it experienced it and they're they were probably saying oh, well yeah. that's actually okay right yeah right that worked mm-hmm. you know it, it, it's great that you bring in uh, the grocery because there's two things happening at the same time that i've talked to grocers about one is as you described this this massive acceleration the great acceleration and adoption of of online grocery and then the second is in North America, more than anywhere else in the world, consumers would visit often, multiple times a week with smaller basket sizes. Not as small as you know Europe, which would have small fridges and, and would go almost daily. But yeah. one of the things I've observed is consumers now, and it's been reported uh, to me by the grocers across North America, is that consumers are now coming once a week, if that, but when they leave, their baskets are immense. And it's all destination shopping. No one's browsing anymore. Uh, you know, They go, they go with a list, they come in, uh-huh. and they leave. Oh, and, okay. I and didn't there's, know that. this, there's this whole new habit, like the, like the, the, the metrics are just gone awry. People just don't wander into your stores anymore, at least in, in the merchants I've talked to. And, and it's a big problem, of course, uh, on the one end, the big baskets are nice. Yes. Um, so they're, you know, the sales are actually up dramatically in grocery as consumption shifts from restaurants into grocery, right? That's the, they're the net recipient, yeah. but this, the, the, you described two you know, two habits that are being formed and one that's being massively broken. And it'll be interesting to see how that, that, you know, that falls out in 2021 and beyond. No kidding. Hey, do you, here's a question mm. on that list. Do, 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 is there data on this on that list? Is, is it paper towels or is it bounty? Do, is the list as so specific that, that they are going, they're going with a brand or is mm. it just, I need to get, I need to get an eight, pack of uh, paper towels do you know well i th- i think uh, if i look at the the second wave is starting to hit on in ontario and quebec and you can't find bounty anywhere <laughs> right of course. like it's gone and that is it went first so if that's a proxy for people looking for a brand that's it second and i'll use a costco example the kirkland paper towels yes. there was still a few rolls left when i was at costco on sunday yeah. um they're now gone across uh, Ontario, Quebec. It's so funny that the first thing that people 
want is is paper towels like it yeah, was yeah, yeah, I don't yeah. Know, I, I'm, I'm i'm love to have someone explain the consumer <laughs> okay there's a it's pandemic the, i need paper towels yeah it's um, the moral, moral equivalent of the essential worker it's the essential product huh well i i don't know what's essential about paper towels i get toilet yeah. paper a little more than i yeah. get paper towels but anyway yeah. we, we, we digress um you know as we think about and as you've been thinking about uh the impacts of covid and the pandemic and and you know how long it lasts and this what i've now described as the as the covid era Give me a sense of two starts and one stop. If you were sitting down, as, as you said, you spent a lot of time uh, chatting with, with C-level executives. Mm-hmm. Advice for retailers uh, for the COVID years. They think through their strategy. You know, some have the shockwave of demand. You know, suddenly I'm out of stock of paper towels and I can't oh. get things from China or wherever because they, you know, I canceled orders in April and they, they canceled their orders. Or the, the sledgehammer of closures, which hopefully we won't go into too much. But it, it, as you think about this, reflect on two things they should start doing now based on your observations experience. And of course, you know, really it's based on, I'm drawing here from from your chapter in the book, great chapter, an agenda for business, which really kind of anchors in, you know, here's what I see about, about the challenge with efficiency and here's what to do about it for businesses. And then one thing they should they should just stop doing. So two things they should start, one thing they should just stop doing based on both what you've written about in the book and then your observations over the past um, six or seven months. The first one is, is going to be pretty obvious to somebody like you, Michael, who's been in, in Groston and Sconston retailing for so long. But I, I do think with this massive uptick in online where all sorts of people have experimented with it and found it just fine, they've got to take much, much more seriously than they already do of of making that retail stop a pleasant, entertaining, interesting stop. I think they should think about their store as part fulfillment and part entertainment. So surprise, events, uh, kind of uh, uh, things that would cause people to say this is so enjoyable i'm gonna i'm gonna uh, go in because they've got this little you know pop-up you know store in the in, in the in the middle uh, of it with with something i would have never expected in in the store or the like so so it would be it, start recognizing that you cannot compete on fulfillment flat out amazon's amazon's one it plain and plain and simple so that would be start start thinking about it as uh, as a, f- a a form of of enjoyable entertainment to and and uniqueness and surprise etc when when you uh, uh, come there um two i i think you've got to make a fundamental choice on assortment you know uh, one of the things i liked about price club and costco when they first got into into business the the philosophy was we'll only have things that turn uh, four times more than the average turns in our competitor stores. In our stores, and it was a wonderful beggar thy neighbor policy. So you'd go into co- so the so we can mark them up ten uh, percent versus they mark them up forty percent because we ours turn more often. And the terrible beggar thy neighbor thing was that it took out of the sales of their competitors lots of lots of their high turn uh, items and the shoppers would go uh, to them to pick up their low turn items yeah so they and, weren't and they've, and they've sold the item before they've paid the vendor that's the yeah, other kind that, of magic too. behind it <laughs> that too that too it's magical six ways to sunday yeah, yeah. thing of rare beauty but essentially costco exploited the cross subsidization game that the that the other retailers the retailers were were playing uh, that they just can't let uh, willingly uh, uh, happen happen uh, to them so they're going to have to think much more about no I'm I am not going to be the 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 supplier of every last thing they could they could want so they can fill up their basket they'll figure out a way to fill up their 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 basket with you or others the stuff that you have in your store has got to be economically uh, sensible. So those are the, those are the two starts. So think much more carefully about the economics of assortment uh, and to, you know, entertainment. 
in the in the stop is uh, you just you just gotta you know stop with the the obsession with efficiency. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's the stop that, that I talk about in in the book. You need happy, delighted to work there, rested staff to provide that fulfillment plus entertainment. Uh, uh, pleasure uh, experience, and if you're grinding them down and trying to make money on the on the backs of of your workers, it's just it's not it's not not going to work. And so you're going to have to figure out how to migrate to a world where those people want to stay because that's a good experience for them, and they get really good at their their jobs rather than are turning over uh, kind of all the time. Well, insightful as always, and and um, I'm so happy your book is now available for purchase. I've had the privilege of uh, and joy of having be able to write it and think on it, reflect on it for for several months, and and uh, it's a it's a great uh, piece of thought leadership, and it ties into both our our lives as citizens and our lives as in in as business people. Uh, so, thank you so much for joining me again on on the Voice of Retail uh, podcast. It was a real treat catching up with you again, and and. Uh, getting more of your insights and i wish you uh, much luck with uh, with the book and continued uh, success in your work well yeah i've enjoyed it again uh, michael and let's do it again hi this is trin tam chief marketing officer at harry rosen we're of the opinion that to truly do your best you need to feel your best that's why we've started our set the tone webinar series which invites key thought leaders and role models to chat about current events, their passions, and how they set the tone for their personal and professional lives. Join us for lively and informative discussions throughout the fall and winter season with our host, Michael LeBlanc, the producer and host of three podcasts, The Voice of Retail, The Remarkable Retail, and The Food Professor. Our first episode will debut Monday, October the 5th, live online or for viewing after the live session at harryrosen.com. To learn more and register, please visit harryrosen.com or click on the link right in the show notes of this podcast. We look forward to seeing you. That's awesome. We'll move along to our next two talented presenters. Uh, They're here to share everything you wanted to know about retail e-commerce. We've got Michael LeBlanc. He's president of the Emmy LeBlanc and Company Uh, producer and host of the Voice of Retail podcast, and a senior retail advisor to Retail Council of Canada. He's joined along with Ted Starkman, the co-founder of Stream Commerce. Welcome, Michael and Ted. Well, thanks for having us, Ted. It's great to see you, if not in person, uh, here together. It's a a pile of fun. And uh, listen, welcome, everyone. Uh, Good afternoon and good morning to those of you tuning in from the West Coast. Uh, my co-host, co-presenter, Ted Starkman, and I are going to spend the next three or four hours kind of unpacking e-commerce. It'll take about that long just to kind of scratch the surface. Just kidding. Dominic, don't worry. Uh, we're going to stick close to our, our time. Listen, between Ted and I, we've got more than 40 years of experience in e-commerce. Now, this isn't a history lesson, though. I'm going to give you a, an idea of what's happened in the, in the, so far in the COVID era. And then we'll narrow the lens down and really focus on e-commerce. That's where Ted's going to join me. uh, And we're just going to have a fireside chat and uh, you'll get to see uh, firsthand his experience and his wisdom. So, so just to set the table, um, retail facts, you know, this is uh, 2018 data, but it really only increased a couple of percent, three, maybe two, three percent for 2019. So when we talk about core retail and core retail, what we're referring to today does not include automotive, does not include restaurants and does not include gasoline. So when we talk about core retail, and that's a very important number, uh, because whenever people talk about what percentage is e-commerce of retail, it's always important to understand what they're framing that against, in other words. So regardless, uh, core retail in this country, and that includes grocery, uh, $376 billion. Uh, You know, I I spent the past couple of years traveling uh, the world that's speaking at conferences. Anybody remember those? Uh, where we would uh, talk about, I would talk about how the retail apocalypse was a myth. It was a media narrative. It was a canard. It never really happened. What did happen, though, retail was going through tremendous transformation. And it's important to understand that as we start to think about uh, the impacts of the COVID era. So there's no question that retail was undergoing tremendous transformation. Not only was it being affected by e-commerce, but there's a number of different uh, demographic, sociographic, uh, financial impacts that were affecting and changing 
the course of retail. If, if, when I'm asked to explain what's going on in modern retail, it's really bifurcating along two directions. You're either in experience or you're in efficiency or your value experience and luxury. And where the danger zones are is in the middle. So as my uh, partner in my latest podcast, Remarkable Retail says, Steve Dennis, you know, retail isn't dead, boring retail is. So, you know, it's the decline of the boring middle. And that's where we see this, again, bifurcation along these various dimensions. That's a whole separate presentation, but just to kind of set the frame. And then this happened, this whole COVID thing happened. Uh, and as I'll describe later in the presentation, uh, depending on the kind of retailer you were, essential, non-essential, COVID either hit you like a sledgehammer or a shockwave. I just picked a random chart here. They, they all kind of look the same. This is uh, the Toronto subway passenger exit counts. Uh, this precipitous decline has real meaningful impact, of course, on retail. Anyone who's had the chance to go into the, uh, the downtown Toronto underground or in major cities like uh, Montreal, Vancouver, uh, you'll see Calgary, you'll see their downtown looks very, very different without the millions and millions of Canadians going each and every day into their office. It is transformational and it is hugely impactful. So what are the early impacts? And I call this the early impacts because really we're just in the beginning days of the COVID-19 era. Depending on your perspective and, and uh, how things progress, this could be a two-year phenomenon still yet to go, depending on things like vaccines, efficacy, and then the longer lasting impacts. But starting the year, retail was okay. We were up, uh, core retail was up 2.3%. Things were moving along just in context. American retail was up about 4.5%. Uh, so things were fine. Now, core retail was up 2.3%. E-commerce was up 16, 18%, depending on the numbers you look at it. So clearly there was channel shift happening. This is part of this evolution of retail. March, again, when March hit, it was either a shockwave or a sledgehammer. Either you were scrambling to get product on the shelf as Canadians pantry loaded, or you were shut down. Retailers, retailers are like, uh, like sharks. They got to keep moving. This has never happened before. Uh, so these are, uh, you know, the center box on, uh, on the bingo card. You know, if it's not, uh, you're on mute. It's certainly unprecedented times. You know, these, these shutdowns affected uh, retailers not equally, however. And as you know, in different places in the country, they went from uh, deemed essential, which was always grocery, always pharma. But in some parts of the country, that was also home improvement. That was pets. Uh, and then, of course, that was for a time in Ontario, uh, you know, cannabis, which went from illicit to essential uh, in 18 months. So talk about a transformation. Um, you know, we'll, that's a whole other presentation. These changes are impacting our lives in small and large ways, how we buy, where we buy, when we shop, how we buy it. Millions of Canadians are working at home. That is transformational. We don't know how long that's going to last, but we can imagine that's going to last for a fair bit of time, even until potentially forever as the you know, as companies decide that perhaps we just need you in the office for collaboration. You know, some companies have already said that they really don't see a, a place for physical presence uh, in the workplace. The shopping behaviors, though, and we touched on some of that in, in Brandspark, bigger baskets, less visits, a great acceleration of e-commerce. Probably uh, it's estimated by Forrester, probably moved ahead in uh, two years in the U.S. The U.S. market was already well developed, probably moved ahead five years. So this was coming anyway. So the point you need to understand, and we saw that both from the introduction and the data, is this was happening anyway. It's just been advanced. Now, what we see is a big focus on the home and the outdoors as we adjust our lives to this COVID era. So the winners, so to speak, because it is not, uh, there are winners and there are people who are doing less well. Uh, the winners, home, DIY, gardening, uh, furniture, try and find a chest freezer or a patio heater, outdoor economy, as, as I've started to call it. Uh, and we're preparing for that for the winter, whether that's snowshoeing or outdoor fitness or heaters or, or whatever that is. Pets, the adoption of pets is off the chart. 1.6 million pets were adopted during the COVID era in the U.S. Probably take that number by 10. It's probably a similar story here. And of course, groceries. Grocery is the poster child for uh, growth in not just e-commerce, but what happened is this transference of demand from food service and restaurants into the grocery store. And, and we, we see that continuing through to uh, through 2021. So, you know, on the downside, uh, if your fashion, your travel, your tourism, uh, if your retails have relied on that, very difficult day. So spoken differently, 
If you're a fashion retailer in a shopping mall that's attached to an office building, you know, that's, that's the not so great end of the spectrum. Implications and outcomes, short term, uh, you know, e-commerce is actually, this number is, is from June, July came out uh, yesterday, but uh, or Friday shows a similar trend. E-commerce is kind of leveling off a little bit because as stores open, people go back to shopping in stores. All that being said, we also see a tremendous amount of discretionary income shifting into retail, primarily out of all those trips that aren't taken, all that commuting that's not happening, and all the, uh, you know, all the food and drinks and dinners that are not happening uh, in, in the food service business are certainly less of them. And what we're seeing in the first part of the year, it seems that Canadians wrote down their household debt to the tune of incredibly, you know, over $100 billion. We'll see if that creates more open to buy for consumers. And this great acceleration. So as I said, we've probably been advanced five years. These June numbers, you know, 1.9 to 3.2 billion. Stats Canada numbers aren't a perfect representation of e-commerce for a, for a bunch of reasons, but they're directionally pretty good. July numbers showed 63% year over year between July 2019 and July 2020. Retailers, uh, you know, if you ask them if their traffic is going up or their conversion is going up or their sales are going up, the, the short answer is yes. Here's the nub of these things. And, and for those of you listening, anyone that can hear the sound of my voice, shop early for the holidays. Uh, shop early and shop often, by the way, but shop early because the package delivery infrastructure is very challenged and it's going to get worse not better. Uh, so that's going to have longer term implications uh, for a whole bunch of reasons. By the way, that's not a Canadian phenomenon. That's happening in the US as well. So, you know, the infrastructure, e-commerce is great uh, for a bunch of things. You can add capacity. You can go with, uh, you know, your Shopify plus up in the cloud and have a lot of capacity to handle the traffic. At the end of the day, someone is putting that item on your doorstep and that is still physical. So, you know, as we do these forecasts, I love this quote, you know, on the one hand, on the other hand. So on the one hand, what does holiday look like? Well, listen, there's a lot of uh, disposable income. There's a lot of trips not being taken that could find its way into retail. On the other hand, uh, the economy is a big question mark. We're at 10 plus percent uh, unemployment. And of course, we fear for, you can see for yourselves, the number of, of retailers going into protection. Doesn't mean they're gone, but going into protection. And of course, we're very worried about the food service restaurant industry uh, in this country uh, as patio season wraps up. So with all of that, uh, let's get uh, let's bring on Ted Starkman. Let's get lit. Uh, <laughs> That different. That means something different now, Ted, than it did when uh, when you and I worked together. But um, that's kind of the, the second time you date us within the course of like 10, 15 minutes. This is great. <laughs> I knew you. I knew you'd be a bit a bit of that. Forty years, twenty twenty. You know, it's not it's not uh, not that long. But listen, Ted, why don't you uh, why don't you kick us off uh, and just tell us a bit about yourself and the work you do at Stream Commerce? Sure. Thanks, Mike. And yeah, I wore short sleeves for kind of the fireside chat. If we didn't have a, a bonfire, but yeah, I mean, so far, amazing content from uh, Sonia and Philip. Really, really, really helpful. It's uh, kind of we miss these things. We miss you know. So this is great that the IAB is putting it on. So kind of jump in, jump into my background. Started selling on, online in '96, '97, and if you look back to Sonia's kind of slide on the history of e-commerce right near the beginning. If, if I was smart, I'd probably be retired by now, but still working at it and, and, and loving it. Today, running Stream Commerce. Stream Commerce is a Shopify plus full service, full funnel e-commerce agency. So a little bit unique. We're um, an agency 100% focused on e-commerce, 100% focused on Shopify plus. And, and really trying to hold on to the Shopify Plus rocket and not fall off. You know, kind of all of the exciting stats that you saw from Michael and and uh, and Sonia and Philip. We're, we're living it, kind of boots on the ground, sorting through these things. Been been an exciting year. We really we've really seen a, a little bit of everything. The agency came as an offshoot of my business partner Robert Hashimoto's three um, PL business, Think Logistics. We support you know some of the biggest retailers in Canada and. Um, for those retailers, say, this is great. You can handle kind of the infrastructure, warehousing, and logistics. Can you help us grow the business? And, and that's how we started Stream. So, and, and in both sides of the business, we're seeing unprecedented volume. It's been it's been quite a year and and fun. And as you can tell, I don't get out much. I can't you know just can wind me up and keep talking here because it's, it really has been kind of chained to the desk and fielding new opportunities and, and helping our current clients grow in this environment. Well, let, let me jump in and pick it up from there. I mean, you described yourself as boots on the ground as, as the agency, your tip of the spear, your Shopify Plus, which is a rocket. Uh, but of course, it represents a broader 
this great acceleration. So as you sit with your clients and, and you recently just launched a site, maybe you could talk about, about your recent uh, success and recent launch. So this is, this is a, you know, live as we, as we say, what's been your experience for the past six months with, with both new clients, but also existing clients and, and reacting to this great acceleration? Yeah, we we really seen everything. You know, kind of the, the year started out as, as kind of everyone's reference, kind of normal pattern. E-commerce has experienced tremendous growth, but but this acceleration and and kind of the, the flip of probably three different com- components of it. One kind of the really challenge, so right out of the gate, the kind of the potential opportunities, whether it was stores that were shutting down, kind of vertical brands, the closing stores, and okay, I've got no cash flow. I can't really continue kind of my investment in e-commerce. I've got to. I have to figure this out, um, you know, working with a global eyeglass retailer. And it was like the opposite end of the spectrum. They had planned to re-platform to Shopify Plus, and you know, lots of great work involved there. And they're saying, hold on, we've got to fire up another warehouse. We've got so much volume. We, we, we need to figure out how we manage the day-to-day business. And then you know, one of our favorite clients, longest-term clients, Canadian Automobile Association, although you don't think about them in terms of retail and and transactions and you know, kind of e-commerce, as Sonia described at the beginning, is is, is much broader. Like in the heart of it, you know, in even though we think about them in roadside assistance, their travel and insurance predominantly, and e-commerce and retail is complementary to to their membership. Um, so that you know, kind of the first group. The second group, brands that want to accelerate. So we've got you know beauty clients are saying, "Let's go." Whereas we, you know, kind of internal teams, and this would resonate for a lot of people listening in, couldn't muster kind of the support. Um, and you saw that from Philip's slides as well to get the finances and budgets to support their projects. Or like, let's go. Stores are closed. Our wholesale business is on pause. We need to make this happen. This is this is um, true reality. And then, as Michael referenced, we just launched one of our most complicated, exciting projects. Uh, last week, Mastermind Toys, great Canadian uh, retailer, brand new, phenomenally talented exec- Canadian executive team, uh, launching truly, they had a Ropus solution, which is like highly COVID, you know, kind of unfriendly in terms of reserve online, pick up in store, and so you've got that contact, and quickly as our project to kind of replatform them on Plus, turned to Bopus, you know, it's just strategic decisions that we were working through with the client and trying to figure out what's the route to go. Is this important online retail as part of their digital transformation? And the CEO, Sarah Jordan, and team driving the business forward where digital was at the core and e-commerce at the core. But it was very clear that we've got to figure out buy online, pick up in store. And so so we launched buy online, pick up in store. They they had a solution in the interim and but kind of a full-fledged solution um, on Shopify Plus to really react, like react to the environment. These are decisions that may have been waited till next year, you know, kind of focus on online, yeah. Black Friday, yeah. Cyber Monday. And I've been hearing that from, you know, the, from across the spectrum as well. And, and for, for, the, for those at home, uh, you know, Bopus and Boris, the two cousins uh, uh, in retail, <laughs> uh, buy online, pick up in store and buy online, return in store, Bopus and Boris. You know, we heard also the, the rise of, of curbside. Now, curbside existed for some retailers, but it became either a lifeline or a, a, just a necessity. And I've, I've referred to, and Ted, and you and I talked about this, I've referred to those three things as a safety valve for this holiday. And the problem we have, uh, the challenge retailers have is, again, capacity and the shipping uh, network. You can't go from, you can't have a 63% increase in packages and, and adapt to that quickly. This takes warehouses, this takes people, uh, so again, shop early, but the safety valve, and even some retailers, uh, Ted and I work together at the Shopping Channel, now today's Shopping Choice, they allow pickup in the warehouse. So retailers are doing anything they can to take that pressure off uh, delivery. Ted, let's talk about the demand side. Let's finish off with a bit of discussion on the driving demand side, because that's part of your agency as well. And I, I wanted you to kind of, when you sit with your clients and talk about uh, driving demand, it's a very different conversation. I mean, you've got Players like Amazon, that is now probably one of the, the the number one destination for in Canada, where people start their search. They don't necessarily finish it there. When you talk about demand generation, as you said, you know it's one thing to build a site; it's another thing to get it going. What what what's uh, t- talk about those uh, that intersection of advertising and commerce, and and how you have that dialogue with your uh, with your clients? Yeah, it's, uh, for, can't can't ignore Amazon and Amazon as an advertising network in and of itself. And I think yeah, Sonia referred to it earlier. 
and and the power, as you said, like sixty percent plus. I'm not up to date on kind of the latest stats in terms of searches start on Amazon, so it it can't be ignored. Most of our clients, um, both they have physical retail or vertical brands, have to figure out how to you know kind of drive their own audiences, and so as kind of we're, we're somewhat biased as performance marketers. My background is in direct response television and TV shopping and. You know, kind of as digital performance marketing drove through, that's kind of you know the number one tactic. But it it, it kind of runs the gamut, which is so much fun. Like that's the intellectual challenge, and why well, I jump out of bed every day. And my team, you know, kind of every element of the funnel from top of funnel to the bottom at, at conversion has to work through in the media mix in general. There's just not one silver bullet. You know, I think three. Four years ago, with some of our clients on Facebook, you know, able to generate, you know, 10, 15 X for every dollar spend, you know, kind of in cases it was, you know, kind of the Wild West mm -hmm. where you don't get that kind of performance today. SMS, we see is kind of the kind of the closest mm -hmm. to where we see kind of absolutely spectacular numbers. But, uh, you know, everything from traditional um, paid, you know, across search, social um, but kind of the difference in, the, in, in these brands and creating their own community. So ultimately, we need the media to drive in the eyeballs. But the, even in 2020, in COVID, with this acceleration, the number one ROI tool we see is email. And so email doesn't exist without kind of that list building and kind of a list building connection to kind of the media play awareness, you know, kind of mid-funnel right. trial, and but then owned, you know, for these brands, especially in this environment where budgets can be tight and tough, you know, kind of the owned marketing as, as a key component of looking at the, the full funnel is, uh, is significant. Brent, we work with Clavia, which is kind of a, our email service platform that we recommend, highly integrated with Shopify Plus, and it's, it's amazing what you can do kind of with these tools today that, you know, in a fully integrated basis. Well, I mean, that's that's what I'd, I'd key on for the kind of last thoughts is this this nature of being fully integrated. And I would also say I've talked to retailers and, and you and I used to run a catalog at the shopping channel. Uh, you know, catalogs are, are back to some degree. Direct mail, direct marketing is back. There's less items in the mailbox. People are home uh, a little bit more. And uh, the folks I talk to, there's a, a set of retailers who still do uh, whether it's an enhanced flyer or whether it's actually a full-blown catalog, they're seeing great success. And, and it works as a medium to broadcast the rest of the assortment as well. You don't always necessarily sell what's featured in the catalog. That's hard to pick, hard to pick winners and losers some days. Why don't we, uh, you know, let's leave a little bit of time for, for questions uh, and a little bit of thought. So let's go to the next slide, put the question slide up and, and just wanted to make sure that, uh, you know, we power through this pretty quickly. So if anyone has any questions about uh, e-commerce, the state of retail, uh, we'd be happy to uh, happy to entertain them. Thank you, Michael and Ted. Ted, I I have a question for you. I I think you made a, an awesome point um, when you were discussing CAA and how uh, a non traditional e commerce brand was able to to take e commerce learnings and apply that in their strategy. So uh, my question is, how do you frame that conversation in a period where, uh, you know, the reality for a lot of our clients are they're pulling back on marketing spend and, you know, not necessarily in the best frame of mind to, to try something new. I think it's, it's a great point. Budgets are in challenge and kind of, kind of the environment is challenging, but um, another great example, we, and there's a case study on, on the Shopify plus site that just came out with our, our work with Molson Coors. So Molson is probably, you know, everyone would know, you know, kind of centuries old, not decades old business, and when COVID hit, you know, the challenges at restaurant, challenges with kind of their traditional distribution and said, we, we've got to, either we just hold back and wait for these things to happen or we drive forward. And so, you know, actually in 10 days, we built a kind of a click and collect local delivery um, site. And then from their perspective, collaborating with the rest of their agency partners, they jump full in to kind of on spend from from a, a massive flag on the 401, you know, kind of from kind of an outdoor kind of, but then of kind of on a digital media perspective from the social and paid channels, they they they, they turned the tide and instead of pulling back, they they decided to push forward. So there's a lot of great examples out there of uh, you know kind of forward thinking um, brands and retailers, non-traditional retailers that you wouldn't think of, like a CAA or a Molson Coors, are jumping into e-commerce and jumping in with their media budgets as well. 
No, fair point. And, uh, and I think that that's been one of the cooler aspects of, of the past six months is watching these large companies <laughs> pivot and adapt and, and make quick decisions that we're not necessarily accustomed to. Hey, Dom. Yeah, I've got, uh, I've got Tamara Brancati who's just put her hand up. So I'm just going to allow uh, Tamara to speak. I'm sorry. I was going to type my question and then I ended up pressing the wrong button, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> my, my question my question was more retail related uh not specific to e-com does do you know has there been any feedback around um sort of like black friday the the naming convention of black friday and um you know just around the heightened racial inequality is is it has there been any feedback on on using black friday naming convention for sales and like is black friday still a big thing i know black fridays there's like a black friday month kind of coming up so just if you guys could talk to that at all yeah i'll jump in to answer your first question that's not a discussion that i've been hearing anywhere in north america to date and that may be because uh, the overwhelming concern about black friday cyber monday is the the collision of promotional events and how retailers this year are going to handle uh, that promotional event, because traditionally it relies on a lot of people in stores all at the same time, none of which can happen anywhere in North America. So there's, there's the concerns dominating retailers' thoughts today are about how to actually pull off Black Friday. I mean, we haven't even had Amazon's Prime Day yet, which was typically July. Uh, that's, you know, that could be happening in October. We don't know. Um, Ted, I don't know if you've heard, but they keep that stuff pretty close to their their chest. And, and, you know, that's just another promotional event, but that's going to jam up the packaging system, right? And you've got back to school is still happening. You know, back to school a week ago usually is done from a, a retail perspective. It's going to linger on till late September, given the way schools are opening. So uh, is it a big thing? Absolutely. You know, that promotional event is actually now um, bigger than Boxing Day in Canada by a couple of points. Uh, 41% of Canadians said that they would participate in Black Friday slash Cyber Monday, a little bit less Cyber Monday, versus uh, 39%. Boxing Day still huge. Black Friday's a thing um, in terms of in terms of a, a promotional event. Um, Tamara, I, I think you were talking more about the um, the taxonomy behind it. Yeah, the 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 you know kind of like um, what IAB Canada has been doing around uh, block like instead of uh, blacklisting, blocklisting that kind of thing. And so you were probably, um, you mm -hmm. know, inquiring about like, is there a different name uh, or label that is, uh, you know, you know, it, you know, I guess it's up for debate. Like, should it be renamed? Um, I'm not sure what the origins are of the of the labeling of uh, of Black Friday as, it, you know, and what it, the, it comes what? in. The, the, there's a couple of reasons why it's called Black Friday, but the the conventional wisdom is it's when retailers go from the red of kind of losing money to the black of making money in terms of on their balance sheet, because there's so much volume that happens in the last six weeks. So that's, you know, yeah. where the naming convention comes from. So again, I, I did understand the question from the context perspective. It's not a dialogue I've heard. Um, right. I've heard, you know, more I've heard in Canada, the, the concerns about collision of promotional events with, uh, with Remembrance Day on November 11th. So retailers are careful uh, to kind of parse that out, but uh, you know, mm -hmm. it, it's it's right. uh, and it, it just may be, you know, coming soon, but it's not something I've heard. But awesome. right, it was it was a two it was a two part question. So you guys both kind of addressed it. It was definitely the taxonomy, but plus, like people aren't are. I, I know there's going to be big sales, and people aren't going to be lining up to Correct. you know get get to those sales. And then how are the retailers going to deal with? Well, it, it's a it's a great question. In fact, retailers are not going to have door crashers. They they see that as irresponsible. Uh, so you're going to have a very different promotional period uh, in the U.S. Uh, Home Depot's announced they're not doing Black Friday. They're going to have events uh, through the holidays. It is a very uh, prominent topic amongst retail. How do you have excitement and sales, uh, but at the same time be uh, responsible and just simply capacity is just, you know, you, if you can't get half the people in the store. Uh, and that's not just a just a promotional event weekend issue. That's going to be an issue for the rest. Now, so is it e-commerce that picks up the slack? Yes and no probably from a demand perspective, but from a supply of how they get to the doorstep, back to the conversation about safety valves and shop early and retailers will start having promotions 
farther out to try to smooth out uh, the demand, so to speak, this year as much as they can. Fantastic. Thanks, guys. Um, we do need to move on, but there's a really interesting question. So, Michael, Ted, I'll throw it to both of you and as quick as you can. Uh, do you think there's a way for industries who rely on foot traffic, like entertainment and events, to take advantage of e-commerce um, uh, considering that many of these businesses are shut down. So I think it's, you know, looking at different ways to, to bring concerts to the forefront, um, like Fortnite and, and other ways to, to elevate and, and resurrect some of these industries that are in that stalled mode. Uh, I can jump in, Mike. Um, actually, we had a live, a live streaming client who kind of entertainment focused their, their entire world, their live events. And so they went to live streaming and added a merch component. So they're actually uh, implemented e-commerce for the ticket sales, but connected the ticket sales to merch and swag related to the to the live streaming. So there's so many different creative ways out there. So I think there's efficiency plays, but there's all, also growth. Nothing will replace kind of, you know, where, where we've been, but there's some really interesting creative solutions and ideas that are already being implemented. This, this company did in about a month. They came to us and asked us to help it, and you know, we leveraged Shopify to make that happen pretty quickly for them. So there is hope <laughs> for all those musicians <laughs> out there. You know, it was a very short discussion, and uh, on a weekly basis, you can tune into any number of uh, podcasts. And this is what we talk about. Ted's been a guest. Um, you know, talk to the brightest people in retail. So, it, you know, if retail is of an interest to you, uh, by all means, tune in. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Well, thanks to Roger, IAB Canada, and of course, Ted Starkman for being my guests and Omnovas for their generous support of this episode. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, your favorite podcast platform, rate and review. Be sure to recommend to a friend or colleague in the retail industry. I'm Michael LeBlanc, founder and president of Emmy LeBlanc Company, Inc., you can learn more about me at www.emmyleblanc.co or, of course, on LinkedIn. Until next time, have a safe week.